Hiya, it's Leslie Dolphin here and welcome to the latest Suffolk Money podcast supported by Kingsfleet. This week, we're in the company of greatness. As a preview to the Felixstowe Book Festival, we're chatting to internationally acclaimed author and Suffolk resident, Louis de Bernier. Louis will be signing books during a cruise on board the Orwell Lady on Sunday, May the 14th. That's ahead of the festival, which takes place in June. He's been chatting to my colleague, Colin Lowe, and it's as riveting as ever. You don't have to do book festivals, but I've always enjoyed them enormously. I mean, I, I think of it as a kind of free tourism. Um, you, you're often going to get put in a nice hotel or something and, and be fed, and you, you go to a place you never would have been otherwise. I have been to Felixstowe hundreds of times, I have to say. Um, I used to play golf on the Felixstowe Ferry Golf Course, which is, I think, the best one in the world. But... Um, and I, and I live near Felixstowe, but in general, if you go to a festival, it could be somewhere like Buxton or Sheffield or Wigtown, where you would never have gone otherwise. And it, it's, it's, I just love the tourism. And there's, there's something um, often rather solitary and depressing about being on your own, you know, working on your own and getting out into the world and meeting, meeting your readers or people who are interested in you or might even fancy you is, is just absolutely fantastic. Do you find that those people who travel around from one to the other just to follow you and listen to you a bit like um, I would to a, to a music group or something? I'm not quite on that scale of success, you know. And I like, but but whenever, whenever Bob Dylan does a concert, he's got the same people in the front row every single time and has had for years. I, I, it's, it's not quite like that for me. Um, but a, a, a nice thing is that I, I often bump into people I haven't seen for absolutely years. You know, it's like someone I was at college with or someone I met in Australia. You know, it's, it's, a, it's extraordinary. Well, pe- people use the occasions to tie up loose ends quite often. Like, do you remember me and me, you know, all this sort of stuff? It's, it's, it's lovely. Oh, that, that is great. And, and how would you describe then from the book festivals, the people who read your books? Are, are they all of a similar demographic or... Do you find that people surprise you, sort of presenting themselves as an avid reader or follower of your material? I occasionally have my stereotypes disrupted, like like meeting, for example, I once met a policeman who was an avid reader. It never occurred to me that policemen could be avid readers. The the, the demographic is normally um, what I call silver tops, you know, people like myself, really. They're they're often retired, but they've they've got the time to go to festivals, you know. um, there's a big problem with festivals is that they're often on when people actually had to be at work. So you can't expect younger people to turn up or people with young families. But um, if it wasn't for the silver tops, there would be no arts whatsoever in this country. It's the older people who keep the arts going. They are the motor of our culture, as far as I can see. And that younger people just catch up later when they're older. Um, and so you do you do sometimes get very young people like you know sc- schoolgirls turning up and you, you think well oh, you know th- these are the ones who who probably want to be writers themselves and they're here to pick up tips. Well, that's the lovely thing about the main Felix Doe activities over a weekend, so people yeah. from all ages can come. Um, yeah. So, do, are you then quizzed on what's the secret to turn a story into an overnight success? Um, I've never had an overnight success, to tell the truth. Captain Corelli took about three or four years to take off. It was a word-of-mouth job. 
so I can't advise anyone on how to be an overnight success. I mean, unless you do something outrageously obscene in public, I mean, that'll get you noticed quite quickly. I think people often wonder why they themselves aren't successful writers. Or what, what, is it that's, what is it that you've got that I haven't? Um, what, what is this mysterious gift? And a, a lot of people think that if only they worked hard enough at it, they would get good at it. And that's not actually true. It, it actually, it seems to be some sort of talent or gift, which you don't really have much choice whether you have it or not. Although some people do suddenly become productive in later life. A famous example is Mary Wesley with the Camomile Lawn. I think she was in her 70s, you know, so it actually is never too late. I, I think the crucial thing really is to find what it is that you're good at, because you should only do what you're good at. So it's no good thinking you're going to write War and Peace if your talent is actually for writing pornography. You know what I mean? You should stick to the porn. <laughs> if if you um, I've not heard that before. <laughs> you know, no, you should do you should do what you're good. You find out what you're good at and stick to that. In my case, what happens is that is, is that an idea comes to me in one way or another, and it doesn't matter how, and it niggles at me and niggles at me and niggles at me until I just can't avoid doing it anymore. I have to sit down and do it to get rid of the niggle. If you actually haven't got the niggle, you you haven't got any subject matter, and therefore you're not going to write anything. So you you might have a huge talent and potential, but if you haven't come up with that, that essential idea, you're not gonna settle down to do any work. So of course the question that follows on from that then is where do your ideas come from? Um, some of them arise spontaneously. Characters tend to, that they just arrive, you know, ding! Uh, others, others I just shamelessly steal from people. I mean, my, my, um, my very best ghost story I got from a vicar in Buxton, I, I was, we happened to be next to each other at a dinner table and he told me an amazing ghost story and I just said can I have it he said yes I'm not going to use it so that's that's in one of my books of short stories um you should always travel with a notebook because otherwise we forget so much of what what we encounter it's it's, it's there and it's gone and we think oh well remember that but then you don't so you must have a notebook that's my, my tip to any writer is always have a notebook and if you if you if you forgot to take one with you, go and buy another one. You know, I, I've got I've got a stack of about twenty. So do you have those on the go, or they're sort of half filled with different ideas that you've had, like poems that came to me on the train, for example. Trains are great for writing poetry because of the rhythm of the wheels. You know, the, 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 it sets up the rhythm of, of your of your thought and your speech. But now that trains are quiet, they're much much less useful. <laughs> Trains are a disappointment these days. <laughs> <laughs> You're the only one campaigning for more noisy trains. Well, but that which puts a rhythm to your thought. Yeah, all about ideas. And, and when you have an idea, is there then the need to research about that? So if you were putting together, I mean, are you working on something at the moment in terms of a, a one or two live bits of work? Does it I've, just, I've just got to the editing stage of my next novel, which will be out in October. And I had to do a fair amount of research for that because it was set not only in the future, which is, un which is unusual for me, but it's set on Bodmin Moor in, uh, you know, in Cornwall, which I can't say I knew well. And it's, it, it's a, quite a lot of it is about um, the strange things that arise out of quantum mechanics. And uh, that requires research clearly, but then you had to be able to write it in such a way as it doesn't put people off, you know, who who would see that phrase quantum mechanics and think, right, I'm off. 
I, I, what I found was that I didn't actually have to understand quantum mechanics. I just had to know what its consequences are, like switches being on and off at the same time and things being in two places at the same time, all this really weird stuff. It's, it's fabulous to exploit in a novel. I've got somebody who's two characters at once, for example. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> my, my biggest historical novel was called Birds Without Wings. And for, for that, I spent two weeks walking around the battlefields at Gallipoli, which was heartbreaking, you know, because the bones are still coming to the surface. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, strangely enough, I was at the Imperial War Museum over the weekend just reading up on that, and I thought it really was horrendous. Yeah, my grandfather, my grandfather was there, which gave me a personal interest. Right, but I wanted to I wanted to recount it from the from the point of view of the Turks or the Ottomans because mm. for them it was their stupendous victory against the British and the French, you know, and they're still really proud of it. And the Anzacs, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the Anzacs think they were the only people who were there, and that's really irritating. The French lost about thirty thousand soldiers there. They're in three mass graves. Um, no, you should read Birds Without Wings if you're interested. I'll, I'll, I'll have to pick that one up. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Because the, the, the Turks have so many wonderful stories about what happened there. But, so that meant um, sort of a geographical location again that you had to become familiar with, but also understand what was going on in the battle. Yes, um, it, it was also, people think of research as being very scholarly, but actually it's not. It's fun. It's, it's walking around places. It's talking to people. Um, Making, making, observing what kind of plants grow out of stone walls. And in, in the case of that Gallipoli thing, I, I was staying in a place called Echiabat where there was only one restaurant and the, um, the, the, the cook was called Farouk. He was a great big fat man and he, he, he spoke French. And uh, uh, he was quite disappointed to discover that I was English even though I spoke French. But every, he, he, when I told him what I wanted, he said, OK, I will bring in everybody I know who's interested in this and they'll speak to you when you're eating. So every night I'll come in and he'd say, Ah, oh, bonsoir, monsieur Louis, I see you, vous, je vous parle quelque chose. And I'd have a huge heap of fish or something. And people would come in with their old photographs and their, 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 their great-grandfather's diaries. It was so interesting, and, and I, I learned such a lot, but had an awful lot of fun at the same time. And every, every night, the restaurant lost its corkscrew, screw. We had to go out and find one. <laughs> so it sounds to me, so you then have, have a genuine interest in the subject matter, so that what you're doing is um, changing all that information that you have or absorbing it and then putting it down yeah. to, to fill in the gaps in the story. Yeah. So, so I haven't really written very much that's autobiographical, and that's because I'm not interesting enough. <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know. Let, let, well, let's talk about that. That's, that's an interesting point, that you're not interesting enough, because you, you've, you've had a, a, an experience in, in life, haven't you, that perhaps many of us wouldn't want to go through. But, but yeah. yeah, just talk us through, you know, from the beginning, really. How's, how did you get to where you are now? First of all, you know, education and work and... Well, I did have, in some ways, an extraordinarily good education. But the first school I went to was a prep school in Kent. Well, my, I went there, I was, sent, I was sent as a way as a boarder when I was eight. It was called Granham House in Birchington-on-Sea, and it was run by two headmasters, both of whom I think were pedophiles. But one, of, one of them always had his hands up our shorts, and the other one was a thrasher. He would beat us. He, he was, um, I think, a psychotic thrasher, really. He had been tortured by the Germans during the war and he had flash marks. I think he'd been beaten with a wire flex. 
he had hideous scars across his back and he was taking it out on us. Mm. Um, but so, and so there was a whole culture of bullying and violence. The, the, the diet was terrible. You know, sometimes dinner was a piece of toast with one tin tomato on, you know. And uh, so, so the culture of the school in terms of violence and the sort of bullying and psychological torment was just awful. But the teaching was fantastic. Like, you know, the headmaster, the thrasher, I mean, he, by the time I was 13, he got me fluent in Latin. Mm. Um, it's useful if you want to read inscriptions in churches. Mm. But, uh, but th then I went to a much more humane place uh, called Bradfield in Berkshire. It's another boarding school. And incidentally, um, my kids have not gone to boarding school. I, I see no point in having kids if you don't want them to grow up with you. That's, I just don't know what my mum was doing when we were away. Um, but anyway, um, Brad Bradfield was much more civilised, really, and uh, though the education was less intense. And I had, I had two English teachers there and an RE teacher and so on who were really inspirational. Um, then I was at Manchester University, which I must say was not a, really at all inspirational. This was, this was Manchester in the 1970s when... I Everything was broken, everything was filthy, everyone was always on strike, everyone had a bad attitude. Uh, you'd, you'd have lecturers who just stood out the front or sat on the desk, just, just, just um, free associating, really. Um, so I did a philosophy degree and came out knowing not very much about philosophy, but I, I always retain the interest in philosophy and I'm still, I'm still avidly interested in it. And in fact, my mm -hmm. bedroom is the philosophy library. Right. But, you know, but late, 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 later on, I did, I did a master's degree at the um, University of London and uh, I did my teacher training in Leicester. So I have spent rather a lot of time sitting at desks in classrooms. <laughs> but I, I made up for it. I, I paid for it all by being a landscape gardener. Yeah, I was interested in this. Was there much need for that in Manchester? Not in Manchester, no, but I, I, would, I would come back home to Surrey in the holidays and, and work in the holidays. Ah, I see. Right various retired colonels and admirals and things would get me to build them stone walls and then pay me quite generously. And that was got me through university. Right. Goodness. So you've always had that um, desire to work, to, to, to pay for what you were doing and to, to keep things together. Well, I, was, I was very proud. Uh, uh, or I, uh, Let me see. I had been expected to go into the army. I was going to go into my father's regiment. But after four months at Sandhurst, I realised that, well, the army and I realised we weren't, in, we weren't compatible. I mean, I couldn't stand being told what to do, for one thing, and nor did I want to tell anyone else what to do. I really enjoyed throwing hand grenades and, and spraying things with machine guns and, and having mock battles with the Gurkhas. But I sort of wasn't interested in the technical and academic side of it, like how many companies there were in a battalion. I just couldn't remember that kind of thing. It wasn't sufficiently interesting. So anyway, the, the army and I parted company on very good terms. You know, I got an honourable discharge and I look back on it with some, with some, um, um, how can I say, distant affection now. But um, my parents were really, really pissed off and upset with me because my, my dad had told all his old comrades that I was coming. You know, so um, I, I sort of had this frame of mind that I didn't have the right to depend on them for anything anymore that now it was down to me. My father said to me, you're going to be a failure all your life. And when, when I was 19, 20, and when, when I finally made a success, you know, in the 90s, 
I reminded him of this. And he, what he said, what I meant was, if you carry on like that, you'll be a failure all your life. So I said, I felt, I felt I had something to prove, you know, even, yeah. if meant, even, even if it meant poverty and living off soybeans. Yeah. Which is what I did. That's amazing. And, and do you think that, 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 obviously it still matters to you that you were told that at one stage because you've just repeated it now. So has it, it, it's obviously stayed with you. It stayed with me. I mean, I, I think one of the great things you learn from your parents is how not to be a parent. And I, I try to avoid making the same mistakes that my parents did. But it's quite hard, you know, because you, you, hear, you hear your own dad's voice coming out of your own mouth, you know, to your own son. And you think, oh, shh. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> there we are. Um, I've tried to be, I don't know, a more sympathetic parent than they were. But, but you know, parent, parent, most parents, I think, just do their best. And that's all you can really ask of them. This is the Suffolk Money podcast supported by Kingsfleet with Colin Lowe, whose guest this week is the world-renowned author Louis de Bernier. When did the writing bug get you or when did the desire to have these ideas, put them down on paper and see if someone wanted to read them? When did that come to you? Well, my father wrote poetry. My mother's nickname for him was Pote. He wrote very good verse of the old-fashioned kind. You would have thought he was from the 1920s. He wrote in a style that would remind you of Walter de la Mer or John Macefield or, or Kipling. And so in, in our house, it was perfectly normal to want to be a writer. It's, he, he had never had the, the faith in himself to try and get published. I think he only ever sent one letter off to Faber and got a negative reply and never tried again. That's not how you get ahead. You've got to keep at it if you want to succeed. And then when I was at, at that dreadful school, where I, which I mentioned, I, I had um, an English teacher who was absolutely inspirational. He, he would make us, he, he made us memorize a poem every week, which I still remember. We had to write a short a story every week. We'd be writing essays. Um, he, he, was, he was really dynamite in the classroom. And he, he, he loved things like proverbs. You know, we, we'd have competitions to memorize proverbs. I mean, if everybody had English teachers like that, we would be a nation of literati, believe me. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then at my next school, I had, I had two English teachers who in completely different ways were also absolutely inspirational. One was a very serious intellectual, who's now a music critic, Richard Osborne. And he, he, um, he, he deliberately taught us things that weren't on the curriculum. So, for example, he made us read D.H. Lawrence and T.S. Eliot which weren't on the curriculum at all. And the, the other teacher was, uh, was an actor from Stratford. He'd been in the Shakespeare Company, Royal Shakespeare Company, but he started to go deaf. And so he thought, I know what, I'll be a schoolmaster. Not being a deaf schoolmaster isn't that, but he didn't go as deaf as he expected, but he actually loved the teaching. And he would, he would stand at the front of the class and if we were studying, say, Othello, he would be acting out all the parts. So one minute he was Othello, you know, um, wielding the knife, or he, he was Desdemona being throttled with the pillow, you know. And then, then he was Othello cutting his own throat and falling to the floor. And uh, he, he was absolutely inspirational. Um, oh, amazing. You know, my, my French teacher was pretty good at... He, I mean, I still, I still read novels in French, thanks to him. He hated me, but I liked his... But he, he fired up something in me, you know. 
he said I was a pretentious pseudo-intellectual. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I, I was very lucky with all that. But but I, I think that from the age of 12, when I started writing poetry, I knew I was going to be a writer. It's the way that some people know they're going to be a doctor or a, or a nun. You know, it's, it's the same sort of thing. It was a vocation. And the, the frustration was finding my subject matter and, and um, how to do it well. Yeah. I, I didn't get the hang of that until I was in my early 30s. Really? Yeah. And, and, and obviously you needed to put food on the table in the intervening period while you were yeah. away at this in the background. What, what filled that gap? Well, the landscape garden filled an awful lot of it. Right. I, I taught philosophy evening classes um, in various um, adult education establishments. During the time of the ILEA, we still had, ad, had adult education things and they were really great. Um, so I did that. I've had lots of jobs. I've worked as a carpenter. I've been a motorcycle messenger. I've worked as a porter in a hospital. Um, gosh, it's quite a long list, actually. <laughs> I worked as a car mechanic in a Morris Minor garage in Stoke Newington for a year. And believe me, I was the only mechanic there who knew how an engine worked. Right. So they couldn't fire me. Oh. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so, so I, I had lots and lots of jobs, which obviously were the despair of my mother, who thought she really wanted me to put on a tie and get a proper job in an office. And, you know, to the day she died at the age of something like 89, she was saying, you know, you, you really ought to get a doctorate in case your writing career doesn't work out. I was saying, look, Ma, I've got, I've got five honorary doctorates. I really don't need a real one. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That yeah, so, amazing. so I, I earned a living by... Basically, I, 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 I almost entirely had, you know, working class jobs in my 20s, mm. you know. And, and when, um, when did you get that first nod uh, to say, yes, we're going to publish this? Well, I, I, when I was a teacher, I had a friend at school who's, who had been married to a literary agent. And I, I, she read my poems and she said, you know, you've got to get this published. She didn't want me to give, she didn't want to give me to her ex-husband. So, but she had a friend who, who she thought might be interested. So I sent these poems to that agent and I got a letter back saying, I don't like poetry. I don't get poetry. I don't do poetry. Send me prose. So, and okay. at about that time, it's about that time I had quite a bad motorcycle crash and I smashed up my, um, the bottom of my, you know, the bottom joint on my right leg, which is still weak and painful. And I was six months in plaster. And um, my landlady was having some sort of dreadful emotional crisis, which made it scary to leave my room. And my Irish girlfriend went back to Ireland because she didn't want to look after me. And I spent that six months in plaster writing my first novel. Because I dug out, I dug out a short story I've written when I came back from Colombia, but at the age of 19 or so, I had a year in South America on a ranch. So I, I, I'd written a short story and I thought, I know what, I'll write what happens next. That turned into my first three novels. And when I sent that one to, to my agent, Lavinia Trevor, she knew immediately who would like it. And I was off like a rocket. You know, it, it's, it's after all, all those years in the wilderness, it all happened very suddenly. Yeah. And, you know, within three years, I was earning the same as a writer as I was as a teacher. So I quit teaching. That was it. That was it. Right. <laughs> that was the time when you made the transition to go full time writing. 
is because by then I was working in a, a truancy centre that I'd helped to set up in Battersea. So we had a school for kids who wouldn't go to school. So you can imagine how successful that was. Right. It was extremely stressful. So after yeah. three years, I thought, oh, some other poor bugger can have my job, you know, and I'm off. Right. Remember <laughs> <laughs> the man after me did have a nervous breakdown. Oh, goodness. That sounds like, yeah. So it's like trying to, just trying to round children up, was it? And just uh, try and bring them in through the door. Well, the, but it's obviously more complex. There are than different that. kinds of truants, you know. There's, yeah. there's, there's the kind who is deliberately kept at home by their mum to do babysitting while mum does what she wants. That's very common. So they lose so much time at school that they feel embarrassed to go back in. They fall behind too much. Mm. The other kind of kid is, is the one who's so difficult that, that the school keeps finding reasons to exclude them. And then they sort of, then they fall behind so far that they can't come back. So you, you've, you've got these kind of outrageous strong characters and the sort of wilting flower types all together mm -hmm. in one little, mm -hmm. you know, there should be, we should have had two different kinds of truancy centre, I think. Right. Anyway, anyway it was a, I'm still in touch with one or two of them after all these years, you know. Oh, that's lovely. One, one, of them, one of them said, why don't we have a reunion? And I said, yeah, Amanda, but how many of you will actually turn up? That's <laughs> 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 Oh, dear. Yeah. Mm. Yes, that's an interesting one. Um, so, yeah, uh, it, that's when things really started to pick up for you. And um, I, I guess it's... Um, Captain Crowley's mandolin that you're most well known for, and then uh, obviously that that was then turned into a into a film. Um, how, how did how how was that transition from page to screen uh, for you? They did ask me to write the script, but I think they were only being polite. I'd, I'd never written a script before, and by then I, I was at work on a, a massive historical novel, which is actually the best thing I've ever written, you know, Birds Without Wings, which I mentioned. It's easily my best novel. But uh, I was working on that, and I didn't want to go back over old ground. I slightly regret that now, because I think the script of the film was weak. Um, I sort of wish I had done it. But, you know, films, films, films are made by an army of people. It, it's, it's a huge cooperative effort. Um, it, it, it literally involves hundreds of people, if not thousands, making a film. And I'm not that kind of person. I, I'd want to be in charge, and that's that. You know, I, 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 if I was made dictator of this country, I'd probably be worse than Putin. Um, I, I don't want to have to discuss things with other people and make compromises and so on, um, especially artistically. Um, so, uh, and, and, and that is actually the great weakness of film is that there are too many people involved. So the producers can say, okay, I'm not putting my money in unless it's a car chase, or I'm not putting my money in unless it's a decent sex scene, or I'm not putting, and, and, and the Americans demand happy endings. See, you, you can't have, if you want a film that succeeds in America, you can't have a miserable ending. And I love miserable endings, you know, so... <laughs> That's why, that's why I love Thomas Hardy, you know, mm. the greatest unhappy endings in world literature. Yeah. Um, uh, and I guess that's the dilemma, though, isn't it, between a writer and author who has everything their own way, because that's how you come to write what you write. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. If, if, you, if you're a wise writer, though, which I hope I am, 
I, I do listen to what my agent says when she reads it. There's normally two or three versions before she sends it on to my editors. And then my editors think of things which ought to be taken out or put in. And their ideas are 99% of the time really good and helpful. So I don't think I've ever thrown a wobbly or a strop with my editing team or my agent because, because actually they're nearly always right. But I don't have the same respect for people in the film industry. Sebastian Folks once said to me, Louis, don't have anything to do with the film people. They're all dim or bonkers. You could quote somebody else to say that. <laughs> well, Sebastian Folks said that because he was trying to get Birdsong made into a film. And what a saga that was. Right. And, and then for you, you uh, it sounds like music's pretty important to you as well. Music is what keeps me sane. The fingers on my right hand don't work very well anymore. Something went wrong with them in my 30s. So it's music is still a hell of a struggle, but I find it psychologically and emotionally very, very balancing. M mainly because I think it, it's, it's a bit like doing, if you're good at yoga, you can, you can empty your mind out. There's, there's something about emptying your mind out and getting away from the, the awful, boring, irritating chatter of your own thoughts. I don't know if you have that trouble. I get really bored with my interior monologue. And music just gets rid of it yeah and then um, my, my daughter Sophie's 15 and she's she's just started learning guitar and she's gone from being a bit grumpy and hysterical and bad tempered to being a really happy girl mm. it's 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 it, it's it's really it's really good for you even if you're not that good at it yeah King David uh, well King Saul and David wasn't it playing yes. the harp to him to change his moods so yeah yes I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord that's it. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Exactly that. <laughs> so, so you play a range of instruments, I understand. I do. I'm really a guitar player, but I, I'm, I'm probably better on the flute than anything else. I got to grade six before I just couldn't stand learning any more scales. Uh, once I'd learned to play syrinx, I thought, well, there's nothing actually harder or more fascinating than syrinx. You know, that flute piece by Debussy. I thought once I'd learned that, I didn't need grade seven and eight. But um, I, I, and at times I've, I can, if I'm recording, I can do diddly bits on the clarinet and uh, things like that. Um, and I can play anything with strings and frets. So yes, I do play the mandolin and I'm, I'm quite good at it. I tried to give it up because I got so fed up with the stereotype, but in the end you had to give in. <laughs> How does that exhibit itself? Do you, do you, are you part of a group or um, you just I was I, I was on the road for about 10 years with a bunch of people called the Antonius players, but um, it didn't do my relationship with the children's mother any good. And I think when, when my daughter was one, I realized that um, actually you can't be you can't be an itinerant musician and be a good father. It's just not. And I, I, I chose fatherhood. Um, and now that the kids are teenagers and they don't really need me so much, I, I sort of feel I'm, I'm, I'm getting going again. But um, this time I'm uh, mostly trying to do my own songs. I must have written about 100 songs in my life. And um, I don't have a good voice, sadly. If, if I did, I'd be a lot more successful. But it, it's, it's fun going out and doing your own stuff. And it's another way of doing poetry from my point of view. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, is that able to combine your, your poetry, your love of music, yeah. put it all together? Because everything, everything you know about poetry, you can put into lyrics. And also, oddly enough, you can also put it into prose. Everything. If you if you want to write beautiful prose, you need to be you need to understand poetry. So if, yeah. if, if 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 there's a bit of prose which I want to be particularly emotionally affecting, 
I, I write it as a poem and then convert it back into prose. That is interesting. What, why, why is that? How does it work? What, what is it about the, is it the, the, as you say, the beat, the timing? It's got a lot to do with metre. Yeah. If you can set up a nice, a nice metre. With prose, you, you obviously you can take liberties and put in an extra syllable or you wouldn't have done in a poem or something. But you, you bear in mind rhetorical tricks that you get in poetry, for example, like repetition or using, using assonance and alliteration, which you, you do on purpose in poetry. And, and I think prose writers often forget about it. And one of, one of my complaints about the um, contemporary ways of doing poetry is that poets seem to have absolutely no idea how to make language musical. And I'm very interested in how to make language musical. Yeah, well, goodness me, there's, there's so many different things we could explore on this, but uh, we're obviously a little push for, for time. So um, you're, as you say, you're, you're in the editing stage now of your next novel. Yes, I've, got the, I've just got the proofs through. So I've got to go through doing the bread and butter stuff, like making sure that the punctuation is correct and that people's names are spelled correctly and that somebody has a moustache on page one still has it on page 30, you know, that sort of thing. How do you find that side of things? Because I guess that's following up everything that you've already done and do you find it hard to read through it all again and check every comma and... Well, luckily, luckily I find it quite enjoyable um, because after I've finished a book, I, I t it tends to leave my mind instantly and I'm on to the next thing. Right. And... With a, with a book, it normally doesn't come out until a year after you finished it, by which time, actually, you've completely forgotten everything about it. And so going, go, reading it through several times, a long time after you've written it, is actually rather wonderful. You say, oh, isn't that clever? Or, oh, I've forgotten that. Isn't, you know, uh, or, or you get fond of the characters all over again. So I, I, I don't mind it. I, I do get annoyed sometimes with, with um, for example, fact checkers. Uh, who, who, who don't seem to understand that fiction is about lying. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or people who get obsessed with the time scheme. And Shakespeare had a, in Othello, Shakespeare had a double time scheme. And I don't see why I shouldn't have multiple time schemes. <laughs> but, but, you know, copy editors find that sort of thing very, very upsetting. You have to explain the context before they, yeah, my, they my, go into my, my Czech translator always sends me pages and pages of corrections, you know, literally three years after the book's published and it's a bit late. So when you're um, going to the book festival and you're going to be asked to talk about some of your earlier books, do you have to refresh your memory on them or, or is that slightly different that once they've been published, they do stay with you or um, how, how does that work? I, fi I find that... Um, I've often got a, a sort of a, a stock set of answers, which which I come up with over and over again, over, because I'm asked the same things over the years, and I have to guard against becoming a sort of parrot. Uh, I, I have to warn myself not to let my mind wander off to how nice it would be to be on the golf course, you know. <laughs> so, so I, what, what I like best is when people ask me questions that I, that I haven't been asked before, or they come up with something quite weird and original, that, that fires me up. Well, on the basis that I probably failed to do that completely. <laughs> no, no, because you, you started you started off wanting to know about my education, which is not something I've had to speak about much. Well, um, I, I hope that's been OK to just explore some of these other aspects of, of your Absolutely, life. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think my mind has wandered very much. No. 
<laughs> you haven't thought about the golf course too much. Um, uh, no, that's, it's been fascinating just to um, get a little bit of background to your life story. And, um, and also just from, just from where I'm sitting, just understand the, the difficulty of actually getting, getting it all to add up, getting it to pay and, and what you have to do in the meantime. I think yeah, I mean, I mean, a, a lot of writers expect they just want to be writers. Uh, and that often means they don't actually want to do any writing. They want to be writers. And, and if they are a writer, they, they're pissed off that they can't earn a total living with it. And if, if, you, if, you, if you are, if you do well enough to, to get separated from real life, you actually, you, don't, you no longer have anything to write about because people aren't, you're not having conversations with people in, uh, work or, or whatever so mm. it's very important to keep yourself rooted I, I know a young woman who's just got a first class honours in creative writing at UEA you know and, they, and she wanted to do a doctorate and I said no 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 you get out in the world otherwise you have nothing to write about you know so that's that, that's important I don't know why I'm going on like how did I get onto this I think we're just talking about how you get there so that's all yeah, yeah 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 it, it's, it's not supposed to be easy yeah it's bad yeah. For, if it is easy it's bad for you yes yeah and if it was easy everyone would be doing it and then you wouldn't have good ones so um well it's like it's like a rock star you know, who can have any woman he wants ends up with not having a decent relationship with anyone you know what i mean it's a bit like that it's if it's too, if it's too easy it becomes meaningless and um and and, and somehow you can't engage with it properly I think I suffer from being too successful sometimes. I don't get out enough. But it, it's one of the things I love about having kids, you know. They, they, keep, you, they keep you rooted somehow. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So obviously, um, you, you know the Suffolk area well. Are there places you go to when you just need a bit of a break? Or is there a, a location? Well, you think... probably shouldn't tell us. You... No, no. Um, I think Suffolk, I am, I am, I do live in South Norfolk, and I, I have to admit that Suffolk is a lot prettier than Norfolk. But Norfolk has a sort of grandeur about it. Like you know, it, it's it's flatter than Suffolk. So you can see both ends of the rainbow in the Waveney Valley, for example. That's really something. You can you can you, know, you can you can go over the hill where I am, and if it's been snowing and it's there's a full moon and the, the, the valley is flooded and frozen over, it's like, oh, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, but Suffolk. Um, when I was a teacher at Chantry High School in Ipswich for three years, and my, my escape was to go to Felixstowe Ferry Golf Course or, or the beach at Felixstowe, where there's actually a terribly strong undertow. You know, you can get towed out to Holland quite by mistake. But um, on Felixstowe Golf Course, the, you know, the, the sky the sky is full of larks in the summer. Just it's it's magical, you know. Um, so so. I think that, that was where I mostly went when I was in Ipswich. But obviously, now that, now that I've been living in East Anglia for something like 23 years, well, there are places you always take visitors, like Walberswick Beach or Dunwich or Thortness. Or if you've got the time, you go to Blakeney to look at the seals mm. and, and buy lobsters from roadside kiosks, which is one of the... I love the seafood here. It's, we're really lucky. I grew up for most of my life in Surrey, which is very, it's very sort of domesticated, very heavily wooded, lots of lakes. You can stand on the top of the hill and not see a house all the way to the South Downs from my village. But there are actually thousands and thousands of people living there. You just can't see them because of the trees. So for, for me, that's still a sort of magical landscape. And this is, uh, the landscape here is much less domesticated. It's much less cozy. 
a bit like the people actually and, and I, I think I prefer it I prefer things a bit harder well it's been great just to talk through some of your life experiences the history of your writing yeah. and yeah. everything you've done to make it work um well I see you on the voyage um, I've got to check my diary, actually. Oh. I've seen it on there, but um, oh. yeah, I'll, I'll um, have a look and see if I can do that. I mean, it is on the Orwell Lady, and the Orwell's great, just uh, going under the Orwell Bridge and so on. It's fantastic. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think that, for yeah. anyone who's able to make that, it'll be well worth it. So, yeah, thanks, Louis. It's been great to talk. Um, very kind of you to answer our questions. And, um, yeah, I, I think uh, the, the book festival will will benefit greatly from your stories and uh yeah your experience is fantastic no i've got to go and put up a bird table for my girlfriend <laughs> the back to real life <laughs> with a bump with a bump yeah. thank you very much okay. that's absolutely wonderful thank you Colin Lowe chatting to author Louis de Bernier, who is, I can confirm, not just hugely talented, but a really lovely guy. Now, if you want full details of Louis' book signing cruise and the other authors taking part in the Felixstowe Book Festival, just go to www.felixstowebookfestival.co.uk. And if you want tickets, www.ticketsource.co.uk. Huge thanks to Louis, to Colin, and of course, to the team who put the podcast together. And most of all, to you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. But for now, from me, Leslie Dolphin, goodbye. <laughs>